Now, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We are in Matthew this morning because this is Palm Sunday, and uh, I think it's, of course, relevant that we should think about such things, especially in light of Easter, which is next Sunday. And, of course, Palm Sunday launches this last week in Jesus' life, and so we we th- I think it's right that we come to such a passage, whether it's in this gospel or another gospel, and think about these matters. And I want to consider with you this morning this whole subject of recognizing Jesus. Recognizing Jesus. So, Matthew chapter 21 will begin in verse 1 through verse 11. Now, when they drew near, that's Jesus and his disciples... When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once." This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Of course, not possible to sit on two at a time. So Jesus sits on the colt in accordance with Zechariah, as we see in verse 5. So he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And may God bless to us the reading of his sacred and inspired word. Let's pray together. Now, our Father, as we come this morning to this great passage Help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to grasp its intent, to understand the significance of it as we think on the things that lead up to the cross and the tomb and the third day when Jesus rises from the dead. This is an important time for any Christian to think on these things. And so help us, we pray, to understand them and to realize the the significance, the importance of them. So we commit ourselves to you now, ask your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. The palms, of course, are derived from the crowd, the activity of the crowd, Uh, who go before Jesus and are waving palm branches along with the disciples and so on. And we recognize at the same time, this being Palm Sunday, 
that this is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. This is the Sunday uh, that begins, commences the last week in the life of Jesus. And therefore, uh, since we are familiar and understand and know a little bit from the Bible about the life of Jesus, we now come to the climax, to, to the end of the life of our Savior uh, as He uh, found Himself engaged in uh, before us. On Friday, if this is Sunday, Jesus will be dead, hanging on a cross, crucified. And as far as the disciples are concerned, that is the end of the matter. They are in sorrow, they are grieving, they do not understand the Scriptures. It is clear that Jesus must die and be buried and on the third day rise from the dead. Every time Jesus spoke about His resurrection, they were uh, in the dark, as it were, never quite understanding what does He mean by this rising from the dead. And so, as we look at this week, we see Jesus now, as He enters into the city of Jerusalem, precipitating events that are going to lead up to Friday. Friday on which He dies and is buried and all, it would appear, is lost. But of course, Easter Sunday is a different story. On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. So this is a passage like you'll find in Mark or in Luke's Gospel and even in John's Gospel that presages this final week and the events that we find in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must remind ourselves how Jesus has come to be in the city of Jerusalem at this time. He has just finished a very extensive tour in the north, in Galilee, in Caesarea Philippi, and having been there and asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? The confession that came from Simon Peter was, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of David. You are the one that we have been looking for. You are the one that people are expecting to come. And what a great confession that was. And so out of the north, where Jesus, of course, grew up and spent most of his life, Jesus makes his way down, uh, is rejected by the Samaritans as he passes through their villages for the simple reason that he had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, to go and accomplish the purposes that were intended for him to accomplish. So Jesus has finished the ministry up north and is now making his way back and on Saturday, yesterday, as far as Palm Sunday is concerned, on the Sabbath, Jesus has been in Bethany. And he has spent time, of course, with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary in their home. It's a very short distance from Bethany to Jerusalem. You go up the hill and down the hill, and you arrive in the city. And this is what we find the Lord Jesus Christ doing. He's going to spend his days in the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to spend his nights in the little village Bethany. So up the hill and over the hill, back to Bethany in the evening, and then in the morning, up the hill, back down the hill into the city of Jerusalem. And this constitutes the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This traveling back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem. A number of events take place. Uh, for instance, he will curse the fig tree along with his disciples who will marvel that the fig tree withered so fast. And Jesus will instruct them that that kind of thing comes be because of prayer and so on. So 
Jesus is in the last week of his life. The Thursday that is ahead from Palm Sunday, the coming Thursday, he's going to stay the night in Jerusalem. He's not going to go back to Bethany. And the reason he's going to stay the night on Thursday is because the Passover was to be celebrated that evening, going on extending into Friday. And so Jesus, as we know, when he comes to Thursday, will send two disciples to prepare the upper room where I must eat the Passover with my disciples. And we all understand and know the great events that took place on Thursday evening. The institution of the Lord's Supper. The declaration by Jesus that one of his disciples was going to betray him, which set all of them uh, worrying about who it is. Is it I, Lord? Who is it? And of course Jesus exposes uh, to John the Apostle when Peter motions to him to find out who is it that is going to betray him. Uh, Jesus says, it's the one who dips the morsel of bread with me in the cup. These are staggering events because they lead Thursday night to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the arrest of Jesus in the Garden, led by Judas Iscariot, brought before the Jewish leaders on Friday night or Thursday night, Friday morning, confronted by Pilate, the governor, rejected by the people so fast, so quickly, Barabbas is released. And Jesus is dragged, bearing his cross, out of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified on Mount Calvary. Who would have thought it when you look at Matthew 21, Palm Sunday? Who would have considered that Sunday, or Friday I should say, was coming in the light of what takes place right here in this chapter, chapter 21, when everybody is praising Jesus? When everybody is recognizing Jesus in a particular way. And so as we come to the passage, what we want to understand is, what is happening here? On Palm Sunday, Jesus receives the public acclaim of a massive crowd as He comes into Jerusalem. And you will notice the question that is asked as a result of all of this praising that is going on. If you look at verse 10, it says, when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up. So it's not just the crowd that are coming into the city, but the city itself is responding to the acclaim of the crowd, and they say, who is this? Who is this? What is causing, or who is causing, this disturbance or this proclamation that we find from the previous verse, verse 9? The answer, of course, you'll notice comes in verse 11 as to who this is. This is, verse 11, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. What a remarkable question. Who is this? What would you have said if you were in Jerusalem? Who is this? We know, for example, that Herod has asked that kind of question himself when John the Baptist was killed, and suddenly the reports are going around that There's another prophet out there, and Herod thought, well, John the Baptist has come back to life. Of course, it wasn't John the Baptist. It was none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. So there have been these questions that have been asked. Many times when Jesus did a miracle or cast out demons with a word, 
The crowd was astonished, amazed, staggered by what they had seen, by what they had observed, and they would ask the question, who is this? The disciples can be in a boat that is swamped by the winds and the waves, threatening to capsize, and Jesus comes among them, walking on the water, gets into the boat, takes them safely to land. On other occasions, as they are in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, do you not care, Master, that we are perishing? And what does Jesus do? He gets up out of the boat, asks them where their faith is, and then says to the winds and the waves, Peace, be still, and immediately they obey Him. Who is this? who can say a word to demons that inhabit people and cause them all kinds of trouble in their lives. Who, who is this who can say, be gone? And they are gone in an instant. We wonder when we read the Gospels how they failed to recognize the real significance of Jesus of Nazareth. Because they did fail to recognize that. Even the disciples who spent three years with Jesus who eat with him, drink with him, uh, see him deal with the Pharisees, listen to his conversations, observe what he does, are still not quite sure exactly who Jesus is. And I wonder today, as I think of the Christian church, does the Christian church today really understand who Jesus is? The Jesus that came. Not a Jesus that we make up, nor a Jesus that we might like to have, but actually the Jesus that we find in the Bible, in the Scriptures. That is what Palm Sunday is bringing us to, to a recognition of who Jesus is. And so as we consider this passage, we must understand a number of things. For example, Jesus has not arrived in Jerusalem on this day by accident. I mean, look what Matthew says, for example, in chapter 20. Go back one chapter, look at verse 17, through verse 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples. This is Matthew 20, verse 17. He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Now Jesus did not come to Jerusalem, did He, by accident. In fact, He seems quite aware, Jesus Himself, of exactly why He is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to the city because he's going to lay down his life, he's going to give his life as an atoning sacrifice. That's why Jesus is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That's why he has come to Jerusalem. It's not because uh, the tide of popular opinion in Galilee or in the south has shifted away from Jesus, nor is it because the enemies of Jesus have finally managed to trap him and get him and lay hands upon him, as if it was in their power to do so. It's not because of any of those reasons. No, Jesus himself is coming to Jerusalem to do just simply one thing, yes, to die, but he is coming to fulfill 
the Scriptures. He's coming to fulfill what the Old Testament says about Him. So Jesus, for example, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 33, He says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the third day following, for it cannot be, He says, that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem to lay down my life. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples, you remember, when they heard that, they couldn't grasp that. In fact, even Simon Peter, according to Mark's Gospel, took Jesus aside and rebuked Jesus. That is not going to happen. Only for Jesus to say, get behind me. Your mind is fixed on the things of man and not on the things of God. What are the things of God? The things of of God are the scriptures that are being worked out and that are being fulfilled. And even here, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, look what Jesus says, for example, in verse 4. It says, since He has just told them about, I need the donkey and I need the colt, that requirement, the requiring of the donkey with its foal, was the fulfilling of what was spoken by the prophet, right? The Lord needs them, He will send them at once, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And of course, we just read this morning, which prophet? The prophet Zechariah, from chapter 9, verse 9. Very, very powerful verse. A very, very important verse, spoken centuries before. 500 years before our Lord Jesus rode on this day, Matthew 21 into Jerusalem. Yeah, it's just the fulfilling of a prophet's word of what God intends to accomplish. Do you know time and time again we read in our Bibles, don't we, that the scriptures were being fulfilled, that the scriptures had to be fulfilled because thus it is written and so on. And so Jesus, fully aware, fully cognizant of what That means that the Scriptures must be fulfilled and that He Himself was in the plan and the purposes of God. That's why He had come to do the will of His Father. He fulfills Scripture. You remember how even after the resurrection, in that magnificent 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel and verse 44, that Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you when I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Think about that. Everything written in the law of Moses. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, wherever it speaks of Jesus, and there's so many places in those opening five books of the Old Testament that speak to us of Christ. Or think about all the prophetic uh, activity, all the prophets, or all the Psalms, 150 Psalms. Out of all of that Old Testament, Jesus just pulls here and there and reveals Himself as the one who fulfilled the words of God in the Old Testament. Yes, Jesus, everything He did and everything He said was so that He might fulfill the Scriptures. That's why Jesus has come. Now as far as I'm concerned, I think that should be enough proof to point out the veracity of the Bible. The significance of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament Scripture in a multiplicity of situations and occasions is to me proof enough that what 
happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth is because the Bible is true. Or, we could put it this way, Scripture vindicates itself always, doesn't it? Scripture proves itself, Scripture interprets itself. And if that's true, Scripture is authoritative. I can believe this Bible that I have in my hands because it is the Word of God. And everything about Jesus and everything He said and everything He did is the fulfilling of this book. In other words, Jesus is proven to be exactly who He said He was and what He did from the Scriptures. In fact, I think it's so important to recognize that. If you don't accept that this is the case, then you are not a Christian. Because a Christian recognizes that the Scriptures are fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth, that He is the fulfilling of all the Old Testament Scriptures. And so if we fail to recognize, and if we fail to realize the truth of that, then we denounce or decry or deny the veracity of Holy Scripture. And we don't want to do that, because I think it's clear enough that Jesus has come to do that which was written of him. So the triumphal event, or I should say the triumphal entry, is an event of significance, isn't it? It's a profound event, it's an important event, because it has consequences to the fulfilling of it. We must recognize, I think, that the Lord Jesus Christ never does anything without purpose. I have come to do the will of Him who sent me. I have come with a reason. I have come with a purpose. I've come to do that. And you'll notice that there are consequences to the fact that Jesus has come to Jerusalem. For instance, if you look again at verse 10, when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. In other words, a mass demonstration began to take place. There are these crowds of people, masses and masses of them. Well, why are they there? They're there because on Thursday is Passover. And one of the requirements, certainly for every male in Israel, was they had to be present in Jerusalem for Passover. So they've come from everywhere. These pilgrims, if you like, streaming in to the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, coming from Bethany in the morning, joins them. And he is recognized by them uh, for who he is. And so many people are entering the city. This, this accumulation of the crowd, as I've said, is not because it's some protest that's taking place, like we experience in our cities or around the world. This is not a protest. This is a proclamation. This is a declaration of who Jesus is. And you can see that declaration in verse 9. Hosanna to the Son of David, and so on. So notice verse 8, it says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, cut branches from trees, and spread them on the road. So here's the crowd, and what are they doing? Some of them are cutting branches down, side of the road, and some of them are taking off their cloaks and putting them down before Jesus. Then if you look at verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed those who were coming behind him are praising him or shouting out. And notice it, it is they are shouting out these praises of Jesus in verse 9. So there's, a, there's just this mass of humanity and suddenly there's just singing or shouting or praising of Jesus 
who is there riding on a colt coming into the city of Jerusalem. Notice what they say, verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. That's the first thing. Second thing is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And thirdly, Hosanna in the highest. Now when you analyze that, and you look at that statement, notice three things. First of all, Hosanna to the son of David. So there's an acknowledgement that Jesus, who rides on the coal, on the colt, on the, or on the foal of the donkey, that he is the son of David. That's a messianic title. That's an acknowledgement that the one who's on that donkey is none other than Messiah himself. So Hosanna to the son of David. Then look secondly, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Comes as his representative. Comes as sent from God. Comes with authority. So the son of David, who has the legitimate claim to the throne of Israel, to be king over Israel, is entering the city sent from God. And then thirdly, Hosanna in the highest. May God himself receive praise, as it were. Hosanna in the highest. Now these words that you read here, they come from the Old Testament. They come from Psalm 118, verse 25, and verse 26. And there's some significance to Psalm 118. Because Psalm 118 doesn't use the word Hosanna. Psalm 118 uses the word save us. And the interesting thing is, is that translation of save us from the Old Testament is what the New Testament writers translate as Hosanna. Praises to this person. So, save us, this praising of one, the Old Testament is recognizing that in the one who comes, that that one is Savior. That's the recognition. What does it mean to say Hosanna? It's just an ascription of praise in one sense, or it's a request out of the Old Testament, out of Psalm 118, for salvation. It's a request to be delivered. It's a request to be set free. So the crowd are recognizing that something here extraordinary is happening because if this is the fulfilling of Zechariah 9.9, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, righteous, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. If that's what that is, then it makes sense that they would respond by saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Because the son of David and the king who is riding are one and the same person. Now you know, a a king entering a city with a mass of people behind him stirs up people. It brings with it the the ideas of something's going to happen today that's going to transform the nation. Something is going to take place that's going to set us free, that's going to deliver us. That's what they see Jesus as being. He's a deliverer. He's a savior. So this is, in one sense, true. It is a messianic recognition. He is the son of David. Do you know how often Jesus was recognized for who he really was? Every confrontation that Jesus had with demons, every single one of them, they knew who he was. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They identified Jesus What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to cast us into the abyss? Who casts people into the abyss or demons into the abyss? None other than God. 
So they look at Jesus as in his ministry on earth and they recognize him, the demons, that he is the Son of God, that he is God among men. So they recognize him. They recognize him as Messiah. They recognize him as God. You know, every time I read my Bible, I have to remind myself when I read the stories in the Gospel of what Jesus did, that I'm not just reading an incredible story, though it is. I'm not just reading something that is marvelous, though it is. But I am reading about someone who lived 2,000 years ago who said that he was God. And that is simply the fulfilling of all the Old Testament said. And therefore a Christian recognizes Jesus for who he is. That he's not just a lovey-dovey, best friend kind of experience. The kind of Jesus that is promoted by the world. No, he is God. And he has come among men and women to do something. To accomplish something they, in and of themselves, can never achieve or accomplish. So this messianic recognition, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, this recognition of, of who Jesus is, is really about what he is, who he is and what he's going to do. And what is it that Jesus is going to do when he comes to Jerusalem? Well, what he's going to do is provoke the Jewish leadership. That's what he's going to do. He's going to provoke them so much that they're going to take action against him. Now, you know, for three years, Jesus has been in his ministry. And in his ministry, he has experienced opposition over and over and over again. They come to him to test him with hard questions. They want to see what he will do or his disciples will do. They are always looking at Jesus, always seeking to get him, trap him, entice him, whatever it is. But their level of antagonism is going to develop in these four or five days to a degree such that on Friday they have total power, it would appear, over Jesus and crucify him. So, he's going to provoke them. The enthusiasm of the crowd here in Matthew 21 is going to just enrage them, right? One of the first miracles Jesus did was in the synagogue, the man with a withered hand. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, being in the synagogue, asked the question, is it lawful to do that which is good on the Sabbath day? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. And really they, they couldn't answer the question because if they did they'd just give in to Jesus and he would have, that's what he was asking. So no, they remained silent. Is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to heal? And there's just silence from Jewish leaders. So Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, reach forth your hand and he reaches it forth and it's healed. You know the Bible says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians went out and plotted to destroy Jesus. That's back in the early days. And so their antagonism, their opposition has been unfolding. But here, Jesus is going to rush them to do something to bring this antagonism to a head. And the crowd is not helping by acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. Another thing to notice is that, that this really sets off an entire week of confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. 
I mean, look what Jesus does once he enters Jerusalem. Look at chapter 21 and verse 12. So Jesus has come, out, come into Jerusalem now. The crowds perhaps have dispersed. But he enters the temple, verse 12, and he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. You know, those who are providing a service for worshippers. Here's your pigeon, so you can offer your sacrifice. But there, there's money dealing going on in the temple. And Jesus says, verse 13, it is written, notice, it is written, Scripture, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So what is Jesus doing here? He's coming and he is saying, this is my house. This is my temple, my house, and it's supposed to be a place of prayer, but here we have these money lenders who are engaging in their corrupt business practices in the temple, and that's why Jesus calls it a den of robbers. What a transformation from a place of prayer to theft and corruption in the house of God. By the way, when Jesus says, it is written, he is simply quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, 7 and Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. Those are the scriptures. So even the Old Testament scriptures speak about Jesus coming into the temple and turning over these money tables and driving them out of his house. You know, the result of that is quite startling because if you go down to verse 23... When he comes again, this is the following day, Monday, he enters the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people come up to him as he was teaching. And they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So now he is challenged by the, the scribes, the leaders of the Jews as to who he is. Well, who do you think you are? And on what Orders, whose orders are you operating that you are just doing all these things and saying all these things? So the triumphal entry has, been set, has set the stage for this week ahead where Jesus is just going to engage in this confrontation where his authority is challenged over and over again. And over the next few days, that's just going to intensify and deeper till it explodes on Thursday night at the trial of Jesus. Now why is this happening? Why is it going to happen? You see what Jesus is doing is Jesus is forcing the Jewish leadership to change their timetable, to change their schedule, to bring it into line with the schedule of God, with the schedule of Jesus, to bring them into line with the timetable of Christ. So he says things to them. I mean look in this passage, verse 28 onwards. He talks about parables, right? Parable of two sons. Who did the will of God or who did not? He gives them in verse 33 onwards the, the parable of the tenants, which may be next to the parable of the sower and the seed, the most thought-provoking, the most provocative parable in all of Scripture. Because Jesus simply identifies them, the Jewish leadership, as outside the kingdom. And others are in the kingdom that they reject, and so on. And so, he gives them these parables, and in those parables, there is the veiled insinuation that he is denouncing them. 
But when you get to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, Jesus openly comes out with seven woe judgments, doesn't he? So for instance, if you go to Matthew 23, look at the passage. I'll try and pick these up if I can. Verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, You blind fools. Verse 19, You blind men. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse, 25, verse 24, You blind guides. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Well, that's not very nice, Jesus. Right? I mean, that's not a very very pleasant way to engage in some constructive conversation with these Jewish leaders. These are the leaders of Israel, spiritual leaders of Israel. And Jesus just denounces them seven times. It's a, it's a perfect denouncement, perfect judgment upon them. What is Jesus doing? He's pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them so that they will fulfill Scriptures concerning himself. And you know what the result of Matthew 23 is? If you look at verse 38 of Matthew 23, Jesus says, See your house. Notice before it was my house. Now he says, See your house is left to you desolate. And that, of course, is just a foreshadowing of what comes in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, your house left to you desolate. So we can say things are moving to a head, to a crisis point, right? And that crisis point is the deliberate intention of Jesus, which tells me that Jesus is not taken by accident and Jesus is not taken by surprise. It's Jesus who is driving the timetable. It's Jesus who is bringing his own crucifixion to happen when it's supposed to happen. It's Jesus who's orchestrating the events that are surrounding them. The leaders of Israel, the people of Israel, have no conception of what is happening in the, in the spiritual realm. All so that Jesus will fulfill Scripture. And as Jesus himself says in verse 28 of Matthew 20, that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ah, you know, Jesus did that for me. Have you ever thought about it like that? That Jesus is doing all of these things for me. To lay down his life for me. To sacrifice himself for me. He's doing it. Oh yes, the leaders, they hate Jesus. And they think they have accomplished their purposes when they kill Jesus. How wrong they are. They don't know God's plan. And they don't know God's timetable. But Jesus did this for us. Do I recognize him? Do we recognize him as such this morning? Notice also that when Jesus is praised in verse 9 as being the son of David, the Messiah, he does nothing to restrain the crowd. 
He doesn't say, like he said on many occasions, when the demons recognized who he was and forbade people from saying who he was. No, on this occasion, Jesus says, let that declaration go forth, because here I am. I've come to the city. So he does nothing to overturn their estimation, their praise, their identification of him. So it's very clear that what Jesus is doing is no longer in secret like he did previously, when he didn't want people to know just so that he could get about and be about his, the, the Father's business. No, now these things are very public and before everyone, not in secret. And everyone during this last week saw Jesus. I mean, think of the crowds that have come into Jerusalem. They saw Jesus during this week. They listened to Him. He taught them in the temple. And even on the way to the cross, He instructs and gives uh, a word of comfort to others. They saw all that. But yet they failed to recognize what was happening on that day. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, as far as the Bible is concerned, are open events. Invite scrutiny from anyone. Let anybody examine the record. Now think about, we read ancient history, and I love ancient history. And there are records from ancient history. But the record that we have of Jesus of Nazareth far outstrips any ancient record of any civilization of any great leader. So read about Alexander the Great or uh, Cyrus the Great. What we have on Jesus of Nazareth far outstrips all of that and yet people fail to recognize Jesus for who He is. Why is that? Because the heart is wicked and wants its own way and is desperately hard and bound by sin. So, these events of Jesus that are taking place, plenty of witnesses in the last week of Jesus' life. Not only this, but we actually learn what kind of Messiah Jesus is from this passage. He certainly is not what Israel was expecting, right? I mean, what kind of Messiah dies? Right? I mean, you ride into the city of Jerusalem in triumph, surely that means you're going to overthrow your enemies, but no, Friday, you're dead. What kind of Messiah is that? That's not anybody's conception of a Messiah. We don't recognize that kind of Messiah. No, Messiah, the very name, speaks of deliverance, of a deliverer, of one who has power to set others free. So Israel has this conception, the nation, the crowds. They have this idea of Jesus, and it's wrong. It's incorrect. It's not according to the Scriptures, because Jesus has not come to deliver them from their bondage to Rome. No, Jesus has only come for one purpose, to deliver them from their bondage to sin. That's why He came. And they missed it. They missed it. No, He has come to save people from their sins. I mean, isn't that what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21? You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save, deliver His people from their sins. 
not from their enslavement to Rome, but from their own personal bondage to sin. I mean, what a difference, spiritual difference, right, between the two. One is physical, you get delivered from Rome. The other is entirely spiritual, your heart is changed, you have new life, your sins are forgiven. Which one do you want? Because Jesus failed in the one, anticipation of Israel, but he did not fail in the true purpose of why he came, to save his people from their sins. Now you know the remarkable thing about all of this is that people still prefer to hold to their own view of Jesus of Nazareth. Go out into the streets, speak to any person in any country, in any nation of the world, and they still prefer to hold to their own view of Jesus. Go to the Muslim countries, and they will hold to whatever view they have from the Quran of Jesus. He's just a prophet. But he's not as good as our prophet. That's all they recognize of Jesus. So people are prepared in any religion, in any country, in any nation around the world to hold to any view of Jesus except the real view. Except this view. The view of the Bible. The true view. The view that says he came to set his people free from their sins. No, the world is happy if you give them a loving Jesus. The world is happy if you give them a compassionate Jesus. The world is happy if you give them Jesus as an example. The world can live with that, but they will object when Jesus confronts them with their sin. And we all do. We take umbrage that we need a Savior, that we need our sins forgiven. When Jesus confronts you with who He really is, that's the only thing that matters. Your sins keep you from Christ. So, you see verse 11? How do they see Jesus? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But in verse 5, in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Behold, your king comes to you. How do you recognize Jesus? Right? And you know, the interesting thing about Matthew's account is that Matthew does not give us everything that Zechariah 9.9 said. Because Zechariah 9.9 describes the coming king as righteous and having salvation. Not just humble and riding on the colt of a donkey, but a righteous one who has salvation. By the way, what kind of king rides a donkey? I mean, surely for Jesus we need a magnificent horse. Powerful. Glorious. That's what a king rides on, right? You know that there are stories of Alexander the Great and Napoleon. And in fact, I think Napoleon named his horse after the horse that Alexander the Great, I think it was Bucephalus. Magnificent war horse. That's what Alexander the Great needs. That's what Napoleon of France needs. But what does Jesus have? Just a donkey coming into Jerusalem. And Zechariah says, Behold, your king comes to you humble, righteous, and having salvation. 
and they don't recognize Jesus. It's just another prophet. Some say you are John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. Some say you are Jeremiah. But who do you say, my disciples, that I am? You are the Christ. You are the real Messiah. And when they said that, of course, Peter had no concept of what Jesus was about to do. So who, how do we see Jesus? No, when Jesus comes, He comes in humility on, on a beast of burden that conveys the idea of peace and humility. But you see, people never want Jesus for who He is and for what He has done. They want a Jesus of their own making, on their own account, on their grounds. This is Jesus. And that's why you have so much trouble when you witness to people and they give you all kinds of versions of who Jesus is. And you say, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Scripture says. Because where do you get your authority to make a claim that this is who Jesus is? Right here. This is your only authority. And it's not a confused authority. And it's not a conflicted authority. And it doesn't contradict itself. It just reveals Him for who He is. Old Testament, New Testament. And they're married together in perfect harmony and fulfillment. That's the Jesus I must recognize. Not the Jesus that the world makes. Because that Jesus doesn't save me from my sins. No, this Jesus in the Bible, He's the one who forgives me, saves me, cleanses me. So Jesus must be taken for who He is revealed as. The Son of David, yes. The Son of Man, yes. Ah, but the Son of God who came as a man to save me. As the Scripture says, the world will never and can never accept the Jesus of the Bible because they are blind, like the Jewish leadership and even like the crowds who welcomed Jesus on that day. In fact, it is the crowd in a few days who will say, crucify him, crucify him. Well, I thought he was Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Crucify him, crucify him. You see, enthusiasm for Jesus is not the same as believing on Jesus. Following the crowd never saves anyone. Cheering with the crowd never saves anyone. Instead, Jesus says right here in Matthew 19 and verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or lands for my name's sake will inherit eternal life. Who gets eternal life? Those who have left everything behind. Those who have renounced themselves. If anyone would come after me, then let him deny himself, Jesus says. Take up his cross. Be like me. Follow me. Follow me. Mark 8 and 34. Now you know the interesting thing about our Lord is that like everything that He did and everything He says, it demands a response. It always demands a response. And that response is always to be like this. When Jesus reveals Himself, Jesus says, See me. Look at me. This is who I am. Believe me, Jesus says. Recognize who I am. Because only then will we know why He came and why He did what He did for us. 
if Jesus gives sight to the blind, which he did, if Jesus gives sight to the blind, it is so that I might learn that he can give me sight spiritually. If Jesus can touch a leper and cleanse him of his leprosy, then it's so that I might know that I can be cleansed spiritually of all my sin, like leprosy, which is like it. If Jesus raises the dead, which he did, then it is just a picture of what he can do for me in giving me life, new life, out from the dead, which he has done by forgiving me all my sins, by working through the Spirit, this great work of regeneration. You know, when we look at ourselves as Christians, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Not we are dead in trespasses. No, we were dead. Now we are, by the mercy of God, made alive in Christ. Alive, not dead. Alive spiritually. Free from our sins. Free from the condemnation. Free from the guilt because Jesus came. How powerful this gospel is. No, how powerful the Savior is, right? This Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who saves us. Jesus who saves me. And you know what He does in saving us? He gives us newness of life. New life. So any failure to recognize Jesus will lead to a conflict with Jesus. A conflict that you can never win against Jesus. Salvation is always the fruit, it's true, of confession and contrition. Salvation is always the fruit of faith and submission to Jesus. There is no such thing as easy believism. It exists in evangelicalism from almost start to the end. There's no such thing as easy believism. I'll believe if I want. I'll believe whenever I decide. No such thing. No, we are dead. Trespasses and sins. How can a dead man believe? Cannot. He needs life. It's only Jesus who gives life. So believing is impossible without the sovereign intervention of the King. Of Jesus who came on this day. If Israel wants salvation, then let them believe that Jesus who sovereignly can give them freedom from their sins when He dies on the cross on Friday. And even more, stronger than just dying on the cross on Sunday, rising from the dead. How good to know that God is rich in mercy to us. Right? So that every day, me being once spiritually dead, I'm said to be spiritually alive. That I can please God. Live for His glory. You see, the Jesus who came into Jerusalem in Matthew 21 on Palm Sunday came as Savior and came as King. When I read my Bible, I see Jesus just like that. He's my Savior and my King. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God. He's my Deliverer. He has set me free from the curse of the works of the flesh and the law. He's forgiven me all my sins by His sacrifice, His blood shed on the cross. So that I'm free. I'm free. Are you free? Are you free? 
Do you recognize this Jesus who came for us to give us real life, real forgiveness? And when I realize that, then I have two responses. My first is to be thankful that Jesus loved me and did that for me. And my second response is to go on believing and confessing and thanking Him that He has done that for me. That's how we must recognize Jesus when He comes. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, this Word from Palm Sunday account in Matthew. So easy to see in the passage how the crowd had their ideas and views of Jesus and yet Jesus knew why He had come and where He was going. And so we pray that as we meditate on the last life of Jesus through this week, as we think on it for ourselves, as we come next Sunday to remind ourselves of the triumph of Jesus from the tomb, that we might think of what it meant for Him to go to the cross lay down His life as an offering for our sins, to be a sacrifice for us. Father, by Your Holy Spirit this morning, call those who do not know Your Son to repentance and faith, that they too will make the true confession that Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me. He bore my sins in His own body on the tree, so that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. What a change. Thank you, Father, for your great love for us. Thank you for your rich mercy to us. Thank you for your free grace given to us. We thank you that you save us by grace through faith. Not the result of our works, but the result of your grace. Thank you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, our Savior. We ask now that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.